This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Senator Ted Budd, who represents North Carolina in the U.S. Senate. They discuss the Israel-Hamas war and Congress's leadership role in national security. Senator Ted Budd, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Roger. Absolutely. Um, You are the junior senator representing North Carolina. You sit on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Prior to joining the upper body, you were in the House of Representatives for uh, two terms. And uh, before that, you were a North Carolina citizen in the world of business. How do you like being in the world of Washington now uh, with your first term in the Senate and having served a couple terms in the House? You know, great question. People ask me, do I enjoy it? Are you having fun? Which is completely, I, for those questions, I could say, that is the wrong way to ask it. <laughs> what I, but what I, the, the way I answer it is it is work worth doing. And, uh, you know, it's very rewarding work uh, to see the men and women in uniform around the world that are that are serving our country, that are keeping us safe, uh, to meet constituents in all 100 counties in North Carolina. It is an absolute honor of a lifetime. Um, and it's just it's hard to believe, you know, a, a high school kid from Davie County, North Carolina, years later would end up right here. But uh, it's an honor and a privilege. Well, that, that's the beauty of our republic. And it gets people like you uh, leading and, 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 and serving constituents. Um, and I see f- kind of flanking over your, your shoulders there for our uh, viewers. We have all the military branches represented in North Carolina. Yeah, and, and there we go. Space Force, I believe. The Space Force included. Um, <laughs> And North Carolina is quite an important state when it comes to national defense. And I know uh, what's the focus of discussion on national security circles and your work, no doubt. And then how, uh, Senate Armed Services Committee is the war uh, in Israel and Gaza, Hamas, Israel's war on Hamas. Um, and there's actually a North Carolina connection there as well, isn't there, in terms of American hostages. Tell us yeah. about that and uh, what your work has been uh, focusing on that conflict in the U.S. Senate. Yeah, we've, uh, you, you know, we've got one home. There were several North Carolina hostages. So it, all of them, it breaks our heart, you know, about 130 that remain there that we're still fighting for. Uh, the Siegel family has been definitely impacted by this. We're still praying for the release of Keith Siegel, still working for that. Um uh, working with the president's special envoy for for hostage negotiations and release, but uh, that's it's it's a major challenge. It's something we work on every single day. I visited with the families of the hostages, some which had been released, uh, some which uh, were still there. And again, um, our, our hearts are with them, with them, especially as we're going into the the holiday season, and it's a time for families to be together. And there are families that uh, they're not together right now because of the uh, atrocious crimes that Hamas has committed. It's 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 devastating. Thank you for your leadership on it. And, you know, it's uh, so much tragedy uh, since Hamas's massacre in Israel on October 7th. Um, many threads to that tragedy. But one, of course, is the plight of those hostages. Um, over 30 Americans died that day. Um, hostages, some very few have been released. Certainly fewer Americans have been released. About eight remain. You mentioned the special envoy, Roger Carson's you've engaged with. Is it your view, Senator, that the United States is doing everything it can, starting with the president of the United States, uh, to see that American citizens are not left behind, uh, and that 
we're doing everything in our power to bring them home. Well, you know, in one sense, yes, and we appreciate their engagement from the administration, but in one sense, no. Uh, there's simply a telegraphing of weakness uh, that has allowed, you know, people to say the world's on fire. And, you know, there's certainly pockets of that where you have Putin invading Ukraine, you have uh, Xi threatening Taiwan, uh, you have the uh, new again testing of nuclear weapons in uh, North Korea. Uh, you've got Iran being threatening to the whole region and, and including multiple attacks on our troops through proxies. Uh, that stuff wasn't happening under a strong president. It wasn't happening under Reagan. It certainly wasn't happening under President Trump. Uh, so what we get to get back to is peace through strength. So uh, have they been engaged once the problems already started? Yes. But should the problems have ever happened? No. Yeah. Uh, and I actually uh, curious to get your take on the following, you know, Hamas's mortal enemy is Israel. And Israel was able to negotiate by a third party's release of Israelis and a couple of Americans, many ties, for example, have, have been released, as you've noted, uh, public statements on this matter. Russians, do you get the sense that Hamas is uh, choosing not to release Americans, that somehow they don't feel either the pressure or they are incentivized, they feel there's leverage uh, by not releasing Americans. Well, if, you know, there's an interesting Wall Street Journal piece on this the other day. You looked at some of the early hostages, uh, and there was like a thousand to one ratio of Israelis to um, uh, Hamas leaders, um, including the one that largely orchestrated this right now. But now we're seeing three to one. So is it that an improvement? Yes. But the leadership of Hamas, you know, engaged the middle person for us, the middle country for us is Qatar right now. Yeah, uh, they've been engaged with this when we got to say, look, we have troop station there. Um, they are an ally. But at the same time, they're coddling the leaders. Uh, the leaders of Hamas are over there. They're celebrating. And, uh, you know, this is absolutely it's inappropriate. So we need to make sure that we're pressuring our friends and saying, uh, look, yes, you're an ally, but you need to be engaged on this and you need to be doing more uh, to get these hostages released. Yeah, and I'm, I, I really take to heart your comments at the outset in terms of making sure as we go into the holiday season here, uh, thinking about those who will not be with their families, uh, looking at the Reagan diary as we do on occasion here at the Reagan Institute. And, and 40 years ago, uh, around this time, uh, President Reagan entered in his diary uh, how he was pleased that the forces, U.S. forces that were funding Grenada will be home uh, in time uh, for Christmas with their family. Uh, and then he noted those who were unable to be there because uh, military necessity kept them away from their family. And I think it's it's critical for leaders uh, like you to, to, to acknowledge that because it is uh, the most painful or, or even more painful period for these families that are going through hell uh, not to have their loved ones with them at a time of year where uh, thank God with our freedoms in this country, able to be with our, our, our family. And so, um, you know, we, we, we talk about 444 days, Senator, uh, Americans know that's the number of days U S hostages were held captive in Tehran. Uh, Americans, I don't feel, maybe you, you, you see this in North Carolina. I hope it's different. Uh, don't, don't really take to heart the number of days we've had U S citizens and more broadly, all hostages uh, being held cop captive. Well, we can never forget, and that one of the things that I'm doing and some other of my colleagues on the House and the Senate side is constantly keeping this in front of us, that we never forget. Part of the speech I delivered on the House, excuse me, on the Senate floor today 
uh, was uh, that we need to remember them. We need to be praying for them. If you're inclined to do so, we need to make sure that we remember them during the season right now and keep pressure on our allies. Cutter, thanking them for their work and yet saying, hey, you know you can do more and we need you to do that. Yeah, and 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 Qatar has been in the center of this, and and I think conservatives have had kind of different views over their role in all of this. Um, and you know, I watch this carefully uh, how administration officials and elected officials like yourself talk about Qatar. They they of course uh, host Hamas's leadership in Doha and their capital. Uh, unsettling images of Hamas leadership walking around freely. But on the other hand, uh, there's reporting that they do that at the request of the United States back, uh, dating back to the, the Bush administration. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, certainly their posture here has, I think, been presented. You've, re you've met with their uh, uh, leadership here in, in D.C., seems to be trying to uh, advance these hostage releases. How, how do you think about Qatar and all of this, Senator? Well, one of the things he pointed to, and you mentioned this, is, uh, you know, that it was the administration. It was, I think it was, goes back to Bush, Obama, and said, hey, you you guys wanted us to engage with Hamas as a political office. And it's essentially a, a false argument because they've taken in a complete different direction. Um, it, it's coddling terrorists. Uh, it's encouraging them. Uh, we're not looking for safe ground for terrorists. Uh, we're trying to look for uh, the safety and preservation and prosperity of Israel. And th that's not what this is doing right now. So it's changed over the last decade or so. And so we have to make sure that there's no place for them. In fact, we want that leadership, which uh, sponsored this terrorism, which sponsored this brutal uh, series of murders and rapes and the most horrific things you could ever imagine. We want them extradited to the US, US and prosecuted in a court of law right here uh, for those murders, for what they did to US citizens. So that's what we're hoping for, is to get them extradited to right here to the US. We need Qatar uh, to help us with that. Uh, that's an important message you delivered to their leadership in, in D.C. Uh, we're going to hit a, one more item on, on Israel's war against Hamas, and then we'll go on to uh, another uh, challenge uh, and, and security uh, challenge for the United States uh, in Europe with the war in Ukraine. But before we go there, uh, I had a chance to have the Secretary of Defense speak at the Reagan National Defense Forum. Uh, and he spoke very uh, strongly, uh, really bookended in support of Israel, its right to self-defense and the alliance between Israel and the United States. But in between, uh, there was a lot of language focusing and really talking about how he, that is uh, Secretary of Defense Austin, is pressuring Israel on civilian casualties, uh, compliance with the law of war, as well as making the case that with civilian deaths, uh, it risks uh, generating more support on the Palestinian side for Hamas. And he was referencing his time uh, serving in Iraq. No doubt you've had a chance to talk to the secretary and engage in this in your work in the Congress. I'd love to get your take on uh, on those comments by the Secretary of Defense. Yeah, look, when you look at the two million plus that were in Gaza, uh, so many there were, you know, there's some innocence, but there's so many there were complicit with Hamas. They voted him into power. So you have to be very careful to say that there's everyone there is innocent. That's not the the, the, the terrorists and actual Hamas leadership. There's a real blend there that you have to be careful for. I think Israel has been more than fair. You had to give them the space what they do to prosecute their war by the, the rules of modern war. And they're actually, they're actually doing what they can to follow them. 
look, war is tough, war is hell, uh, but they're doing what they can in a bad situation to preserve uh, civilian life. So I, I really uh, think they're doing a good job in a very, very tough situation. Um, it's almost a, it's, it's no win in the sense that can you please everybody? No, because, you know, I like to say those on the left, um, and, and Israel's got certainly a friend of the Republicans, but on the left, and I told people all during 2022, I was traveling the country, raising money for my race, and I met a lot with um, U.S. citizens that, that may have been dual citizens, and they were very interested in Israel, different Israel support groups. And I said, look, some of them, not all of them were Republicans. I said, Democrat Party, the Democrat Party is not anti-Semitic. I said, but it is certainly the home of anti-Semitism. And they seem to agree with this. And now, October 7th, so a year since those meetings, we've actually seen that to be true. Those that coddle and allow anti-Semitism, uh, you really see that on uh, blue cities, deep blue universities, um, in progressive areas. That's where that's where you're seeing this anti-Semitism. So I tell you what, a lot of that is orchestrated from Hamas and those who ideologically align with them. And it's it's absolutely uh, terrific to see here in the U.S. Yeah, it's deeply unsettling, and and it was feel like no more than a day had passed between Hamas's massacre on Israeli soil than you had, as you described it, uh, elements in the United States on campuses and cities uh, marching in support of Hamas. And there's one thing to march in support of the plight of Palestinians uh, and civilians, but uh, you gotta have a stark line between that and, and, and supporting and using the language of Hamas, which, uh, you know, that form of that anti-Semitism should have no place in the public square. And it, and it seems to be given that space in certain pockets in this country. You know, we had a, a young lady from Stanford come in who had experienced anti-Semitism and she saw, this was one of the round table. We couldn't even get Bernie Sanders on the help or health education, labor and pensions committee to have a uh, full hearing. So we just did a round table. Fortunately, mm. Democrats showed up. Young lady from Stanford said, uh, when somebody was yelling from the river, from the, to the sea, Palestine shall be free. She stopped to that person. Stop she said, what does that mean? She says, we, we think that's for the Euphrates River. And, and you know, she didn't even know the geography and that it's essentially calling for genocide. And so when she explained that, she was like, okay, but essentially you're seeing, you're seeing that chant. People don't, some people know what it means. They know that it's genocidal. Some don't, but uh, we, we've actually signed on to a letter. I think Tom Cotton and some others have helped with, have helped lead this, is that denounces that as a resolution uh, that it's genocidal. So there's some things we're doing to make sure we're pushing back against the, the leftist narrative. Yeah. And, and it really seems to me that demographic center, you know, the 18 to 30 demographic um, that uh, is using that language, either knowingly or unknowingly, but uh, to make it clear and to this is a clarifying moment and we have to speak out and, and, and make sure people understand what exactly they're, they're, they're saying. Of course, we all saw testimony in the, uh, in the house recently where, uh, university presidents uh, were unwilling and unable uh, to call out uh, that it is wrong and uh, at the very least harassment uh, and, 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 and hate speech uh, to, to use that genocidal language. Um, you know, we're, we're going to migrate on from, from, from that set of challenges and, and Israel and this war against Hamas and, and, and go to another one, which I know you're dealing with and is front and center for you at the Senate Armed Services Committee in the U.S. Senate, and that is Russia's uh, war in Ukraine. Um, there's before the Congress a supplemental. President Biden has requested 
support. You've been a supporter of Ukraine and 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 support uh, the United States continue to give security support. That is U.S. weapon systems to the Ukrainians so they can fight and defend their freedom. At the same time, uh, there are other things that I know you and Republicans are pushing for, specifically uh, uh, funding and policy related to border security. I guess, give us an update on what the Washington battlefield looks like, Senator. Uh, and then we'd love to hear your reflections after uh, hearing from President Zelensky and others on, on what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, two two important fronts uh, and one impacting the other. I like to say that the great thing about Republicans is that we're independently minded. The worst thing about Republicans is that we're independently minded. And so we often go <laughs> yeah. our own ways and the left takes advantage of that. And when it comes to policy and votes and they fracture us and when you see, um, you, you know, who's got... 10 votes on their side, it's often Republicans peeling away and supporting Democrats. But what I'm seeing right now, um, great leadership from James Langford on this, dealing with the border. And it seems that uh, Republican leadership and uh, all others, all 49 of us are sticking together uh, saying, look, we're willing, uh, we're willing to support Taiwan. We're willing to support the Indo-Pacific. We're willing to support Ukraine. We're willing to support Israel. Uh, and people, People in our conference, they vary to different degrees of where they think about each of those and how they prioritize them. Right. And I have a pathway to each of those. But all of those are on hold until we secure our own border first. We don't want to protect Ukraine's border first. We want to protect our border first. Now, we can get there on the other three, but I like the fact that we are sticking together um, on protecting our southern border and the tragedy there. It's a $105 billion package. We've probably already given 70 or $80 billion. A lot of that's uh, product and its military uh, uh, material that's been produced here and shipped over there. Uh, so again, we have supported them. What we need is accountability. Uh, when it comes to Ukraine, uh, we need a plan. Um, and we certainly need our southern border to be uh, secured first. With Not just with dollars. Biden did suggest $13 billion in the $105 billion plan, but there's no policy behind it. And when I'm down at the southern border, those border agents have said, yes, we need a wall. Yes, we need uh, several things. But what we really need is policy. And we don't have that. You wrote an a excellent uh, piece from Fox News uh, in early November, which I, I, I think is just a, the common sense way to, to, to speak about it. You write, you know, rebuilding American assisting allies and partners. This is you writing should not be a zero sum game. We can both exert global leadership and put America first. These responsibilities should not be in conflict. And it seems to me uh, that's what you're trying to do in the U.S. Senate. Um, and you know, I'm hopeful uh, you and, and your colleagues, at Senator Lanford leading the way here in the negotiation will, will, will succeed. You know, at the core of this, when it comes down to the border is when you, you look at who's staffing the White House, um, uh, help, when, you, when you look at who's dealing with border policy, you're not dealing with those that actually understand the policy. You're looking at uh, rabid activists. And they really don't believe in national distinction. They don't believe in American exceptionalism. And that's really sad. I think if you had uh, Biden in his old form, never really was a moderate. He was uh, a classic liberal for many years, and now he's been co-opted by the progressives. But I believe he might, uh, you know, if he was a little stronger, might put his foot down and say, no, we actually do need to secure our southern border. This was not a partisan issue until about six or seven years ago. But now it's time that we put the brakes on this. We do secure our border. We do believe in American exceptionalism. And a lot of it begins with where we draw the line uh, on the Southeast. Well, it seems to me that yeah, this is one where, uh, you know, president part of leadership is compromised and, and uh, that's what's going to be required to, to get this done. 
I am curious to hear and share with our listeners and viewers uh, your impressions after hearing President Zelensky in terms of what's going on in the actual battlefield. Uh, and one note, just uh, we recently released our Reagan National Defense Survey. You and I have had opportunities to sit down and discuss the last one, not the most recent one. But we asked one question about uh, the arsenal of democracy and, and, and kind of the Reagan doctrine as applied here, where uh, when we tell uh, respondents that, you know, security assistance to Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan, that it, it gives support, uh, but it, it allows them uh, to fight, not uh, U.S. forces uh, to have to do the fight. Uh, we see that Ukraine enjoys 67 percent support uh, as it frames through the Reagan doctrine. And um, um, I'm curious uh, if you think that's reflective of what you hear and and see in North Carolina and, and, and more broadly across the country and uh, gives you confidence as, as, as you engage with leaders like President Zelensky. Well, Roger, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> uh, we talk about North Carolina. I did a telephone town hall. Uh, we had thousands of people on. Over 12,000 people were able to join us. And I was able to take um, uh, quite a few individual calls and we call those folks back that they leave a message with us. But one of the poll questions that I asked is, if we were to, if you knew that we could secure our Southern border first, would you be willing to send aid to, and then I mentioned the other three countries, uh, and it was overwhelmingly yes. It was about 67%, so it was two to one, yes, we can support. But again, you gotta start with being strong here at home. So. There's not an isolationist trend, but there is a sense of priority about our own country first. And that, that 67% number is what lined up with ours as well. And, and uh, that's a super majority. And if you can get the American people to follow, uh, you know, kind of come align with a super majority, you, you know, you got the support and, uh, and that, that that's good for policymaking. Uh, we're coming towards the end of our time in this conversation with, Senator Ted Budd of North Carolina. Uh, this is when we move to our lightning round, where we ask our guests to share their favorite Reagan speech, book, and quote. You can give us all three, Senator, two or just one. What do you have to share with us today? You know, my aunt gave me When Character Was King by Peggy Noonan. And, um, you know, she was, uh, she just said, you have to read this. This was long before politics for me. I was probably still in my 20s or early 30s. And um, so that was a very special book. And then I, I watch as many speeches. I think it goes back to the 1960, um, what's the 1964 speech? Yeah. Um, it was time uh, for choosing. Huh? Yeah, time for choosing. And I watch people send that to me as if it's the first time they ever saw it. So they share it with me, they text it to me, and I watch it again. Um, it's just, it just, it reminds us that issues we face now, they were facing then, and they never go away. And you have to constantly be in the fight. Senator, thank you so much for being on the show. God bless. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.